You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Bad Matter. Your host, I've got Isaiah Hernandez on the program. Uh, Isaiah is an environmental educator and activist. He has the QueerBrownVegan.com. He has over 100,000 followers on social media, went to UC Berkeley and, uh, you know, has been helping out on the front lines in environmental movement. Uh, Isaiah, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, what inspired you and what's your pathway uh, to to getting here now. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up living in poverty in Los Angeles. Um, At a young age, I recognized that my own environment in the San Fernando Valley region had no access to clean air, no clean water, nor soil. And so I think for me, the biggest thing that I started to question is that um, why is it that poor people are deprived from resources? As a teenager, I remember going with my father to garden homes around affluent areas in Los Angeles, like Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Calabasas. And I started to recognize that these communities have access to green spaces. They have clean air, clean um, water, clean soil. And that started to kind of question about, you know, why is it the fact that poor people don't have these resources? Is it because they didn't work hard in life? And so I think when I heard about the term global warming when I was in high school, I started to think about, you know, what does that mean to our communities who are poor? And I remember very briefly as a young child, like hearing um, a presentation from an environmental organization at the time in LA say that your zip code is the highest indicator of your environmental health status. And so that kind of started to get me questioning about where does race, class, and gender intersect with the environment? And so that kind of led me to pursue environmental science at UC Berkeley because I truly believe that in order for me to understand the climate crisis today, I had to put myself in these academic science programs to learn. But then I realized that the failure is that it's not being well communicated to the general public. And there's right now a crisis of education that is happening in our public school systems and in the ways in which social media and dominant culture is responding to these climate disasters that are happening. How would you say it's not being communicated effectively? Because just to play the devil's advocate a little bit, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you did get communicated to, or it was communicated to you that we were having a climate crisis in school. And so you recognize that obviously the challenge of, and the problem of uh, poor neighborhoods being treated differently Mm -hmm. and being kind of literally and figuratively dumped on um, with pollution, that's, that's a major problem. And to me, beyond an educational one, it's, um, it's a problem that uh, we need to address as a society. Yeah, well, I think that to kind of be clarifying on that question is that there's a lack of history that we learn in our public school systems. When I was an undergrad and I learned about the fact that you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, and we reversed it to what came first, the poor community or the toxic facility, you learn that toxic facilities were moving into low-income neighborhoods because affluent areas were actually complaining that if they were going to be built in their communities, that they would legally sue. And so a lot of these communities ended up, you know, being racist in which they discriminated against Black, Indigenous, people of color, which is known as redlining, in which they told veterans of color after World War II 
and they worked alongside with the local governments and banks to not give these people loans to live in these safe, healthy environments and said, if you let a black or brown person live in our neighborhood, you are going to steal from what we have and the resources we have. So give them money unless they're going to live in a low income area, which has high level rates of environmental contamination. That's not taught in history. That's not taught in the ways in which we communicate. What we're told is that the American dream is that if you work hard in life, you'll get out of your situation. But we know that does not exist anymore. And that there's huge injustices that discriminate disproportionately against women, against people of color, um, against queer and trans individuals. And this is something that I think as a young person in this movement, you don't talk about these things because we're told that it doesn't relate to the environment, but that's where that adds this disconnection between nature and humans, where humans are nature, where we were never separated from that. And that's where a lot of us find ourselves so disconnected from the land, from our communities, because we're not taught that we are students of the earth. We're not taught that we are children of the earth that we are inhabiting. Well, I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, we have a lot of firms setting up shop and, and polluting in poor neighborhoods. And that's been the history of the country for, you know, over 100 years. You see oil refineries and things of that nature in places that are poor areas, as you said, because richer folks are probably going to fight against that occurring anywhere close to them. I guess the question is, how do we dig out of this situation? where we're at, because it isn't so easy to just uproot, say, an oil refinery or a a plant that emits toxic chemicals. How do we deal with these situations? What's your plan? Yeah, well, I think it goes back into looking at our existing policies and what's being passed, right? The Inflation Reduction Act is a huge act in which they are actually giving alternatives for clean, green energy. The Department of Energy, Secretary Jennifer Granholm, announced that the DOE received a huge amount of funding to actually train people into green jobs. And I think this is where, you know, for every American... If you tell someone that lives in a low-income neighborhood that's employed by the coal industry, the fossil fuel industry, that's threatening their own livelihood. Of course, they're going to say no. Like, we don't want a new job, right? Because they're scared that they're not going to get the same payment. They're scared that, you know, there's no alternative future that has been presented to them. And so I think that we need to work closely with these institutions that are pushing these policies and these corporations that have the funding that are trying to train young people that are predominantly in low-income communities of color to get transitioning to the green economy because this is the only way in which we're going to help to be able to divest. I think when people say, you know, end fossil fuels, I think they get scared because they think, well, they're trying to end this industry today, but we're trying to transition out to a more sustainable future, not just for economic profit loss. We're thinking about the future of our world. We're thinking about the future of our children. We're also thinking about the future of those that we should be giving back to, regardless if we have we have no connection with those people. And I think, you know, as a climate communicator in this digital media space, I've found that green energy and green conversations around that has often been intimidated by many conservative folks because they are not understanding what it means to have a green job and what it means to be actually paid equitably um, with health benefits and mental health benefits. You know, certainly a friend of mine had described the difference between conservatives and liberals and and one Mm -hmm. 
way, which is maybe simplistic, but uh, just generally your average conservative doesn't want to change anything. They kind of like the status quo. And as you kind of alluded, are afraid of turning things upside down, whereas somebody who might be more liberal is kind of opposed Mm -hmm. to the status quo and willing to turn things upside down a little bit more. You know, somewhere in the middle is is kind of where I land. And um, one of the things that you brought up was kind of the green tech solutions to some of our problems and, and the potential of of those greener jobs, as such as like electric cars. But, you know, I just read a couple of articles recently about electric vehicles and the and the challenges of sourcing all the uh, lithium for all these batteries and the and the mining challenges there. Where do you stand on that one? Yeah, well, I think, you know, with the idea of green cars, it's that I think what needs to be understood from the general public is that it's not the solution. It's a part of the solution. And I think as an environmentalist, the extreme human rights that are happening to obtain these minerals from global South countries is inhumane. Um, But I think that a lot of people use that as a very strong argument to further support the production and the extension of fossil fuel industries. When we know that fossil fuel industries are currently exploding in pipelines, they are poisoning the people, they're poisoning natural resources. So you have this conversation of this, of the saying of which one is the least harmful, but the truth is that they're all harmful, right? And so I think we need to work together to say, if this green energy has deeply systemic problematic issues to society, then we need to start to reinventing the ways in which we're repurposing materials and batteries to actually extend the life cycle. Because if we know about the terminology plan obsolescence, we know that a lot of the times these products that are being designed to us today in our technology sector, um, they're designed to break within a few years because we want more customers. And so I think there needs to be collaboration from both groups to push these policies um, to ensure that. And also, um, from the green tech sector, I think there needs to be this clarification that it's not all this, it's not all the end all be all solution and that we need to continue working together to find other existing solutions that are least harmful. Certainly important uh, for us to be continuing to look for the least harmful situation. And, and it is challenging, it seems, to kind of measure the externalities, as they say in economics, which are the the mm-hmm outgrowth of of using say electric cars you have to do mining well how much mining do you have to do is it worse than the pollution that that comes from extracting you know fossil fuels in in the form of uh, oil and gas Uh, these are questions that need to be looked at very carefully you're listening to climate change this is matt matter we'll be right back after this break talking to isaiah hernandez an environmental educator and activist listening to a climate change this is matt mattern and i've got isaiah hernandez the queer brown vegan on the show today he's an environmental educator and activist isaiah's talking a bit before the break about the issues with electric cars for the record i'm a proponent of electric cars over gas cars 
though I do think that there is an issue with the potential mining related to electric cars. And I drive a hydrogen-powered car, which doesn't have a battery or a very small battery. So, um, you know, I'd kind of like to see us move maybe a little bit more in that direction, though there are challenges with hydrogen and the ability to create enough energy to make the hydrogen. Any thought as to which way you fall on that question? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, it's pretty funny myself when people say, well, you use a fossil fuel car, I actually don't have a license. And I think that a lot of younger people are currently suffering um, access to being able to even afford a car. I mean, like in general, it's, it is expensive to have a car, right? You have to pay for insurance, you have to pay for upkeep. But I think that with electric hydrogen and green hydrogen conversations that are coming out through it, I try to really make it clear with companies is that they avoid greenwashing because I think young consumers understand that a lot of car companies that are producing, like if you look at Toyota, Hyundai, Mercedes, Porsche, like all these like famous car brands, they all have environmental violations that they've been reported of allegedly right and so i i think that with green high like these hydrogen cars i i don't want people to think that it's always the cleanest solution and it's always the um the solution for everyone to do my theory of change has always been that you should use whatever you have until it, it successfully is not able to be used and i think in a, in a very consumer society here in the west like we are a very addicted in consuming excess of items and always wanting the next big thing in our lifestyles, right? And you know, you don't see that many cars being driven from the 90s here in California. You probably see the most latest like Tesla or um the Rivian electric truck that's out there now. Like these are all things that are happening at a very fast rate. And I do think that we need to also question these companies of how are they planning to slow down while producing and phasing out fossil fuel cars for more electric car engines. Well, one thing that uh, kind of gets to me is that, uh, say, the whole Rivian situation, or mm. now Tesla is talking about building a $3.6 billion plant to have electric trucks. And you think that's kind of a waste of all that lithium to make big batteries for big trucks. It would certainly if we are really in an environmental crisis, we should not be making bigger and bigger vehicles. That's not the solution to the problem. We need to make less vehicles and all of us do with less. I mean, in terms mm -hmm. of one of the guests recently uh, on the show was talking about how, for those of us who live in a urban area, that ride sharing and using Uber and Lyft, we could do without having our own personal car and just use a car when we need it, which would save yeah. on a lot of cars. And so that's a way to limit car production. We can all take a car whenever we need it, but we don't have to have a car in our own driveway all the time. Exactly. And I think that there's really great apps out there that even let you rent cars um, for a week. And I think there needs to be more models within these companies that are very popular to co-share these cars, right? Like one thing that I actually will tell you is that, you know, I want, I'm getting my license hopefully this year and I want to buy an electric car. And one thing I did is I talked to my sibling and I asked them like, would you be willing to split this car with me or even use the car 
the days I don't even use it because I know that I would probably use a card maybe two to three times a week. And I know my sibling would probably use it four or five times. And that that's another thing where we have to kind of um, invest in this sustainability culture, not from a product end, but more of this mindset, individual lifestyle lens. And I think that can actually lead to people exploring different options and also provides affordability, right? Because to me, I, I don't want to be paying like that much amount if it's if I'm just using the car for one person. I want to be sure if I want to maximize and split the cost that I'm actually sharing it with my own networks. Yeah, certainly it makes sense to uh, to reduce our outflows on a individual level as well as on a collective level as well. The question is whether or not the mindset is there and whether or not people will mm-hmm. change. I, I don't know if it's been effectively communicated to people why they should make this change and why it's worth doing ride sharing, why it's worth not having your own personal car if you can deal with that uh, situation, or why you shouldn't buy an electric truck and maybe buy a smaller vehicle that has less metal, requires less energy, whether it's an electric vehicle or or any type of vehicle. I mean, I think in general, the general American society is that everyone chooses convenience over sustainability, right? We don't choose what is the most sustainable option for the planet because that's not how we were taught. But I think that, you know, in American traditional values, there's this mindset of working hard for what you want and struggling. But I think that is disconnected once those individuals get to the point where they're financially stable and they're saying, well, why would I want to take an hour and a half bus ride to downtown when I could just take my car? And the history of cars, right? If we know it, the automobile industry was known to say that it destroyed the train and public transit industry because it bought um, properties. It essentially um, built freeways on low-income communities and it designed a system of car culture. And now you see that the symbol of a big, huge truck being symbolized to an American man because that presents this idea of masculinity and strength to society. So... I think going back to this of like, how do we instill this culture? Like, are the American people able to do it? I truly believe that it can be done, but that's only if you work with companies to actually get the messaging right. What we're seeing now is that Generation Z and millennials are making up a huge proportions of consumers. So I'm in my mid-20s. I'm a consumer. I'm going to be a consumer of these companies. And to me, the way that they've been messaging has been always been rooted in these traditional old values that don't make sense to young people. A lot of us young people can't afford homes. We can't afford um, our energy bills, our food bills. Um, we can't even afford our rent sometimes. And so if you're trying to say, well, what are we going to do to shift this culture? We need companies to actually invest resources in giving us the ideas to create these campaigns and to create these resources and pipelines um, to these individuals to actually have these conversations because it's not going to change within a day. We need to work with the media sector. We need to work with the PR sector. We need to work with the ways in which we consume media, specifically on TV and television, because those behavioral mindsets can change us. But I think that a lot of us are already so 
used to seeing a TV show where the person's going on their car to go downtown to a city. No, you don't really see like, let's take public transport and take the bus. Everyone's always in a car. So that normalizes car culture, normalizes this idea to consume. Speaking of consuming, and uh, one of the things that you're most passionate about is being a vegan, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. what's the potential environmental benefit if we were all vegans? What, uh, what would that be? in terms of uh, reduction in carbon emissions for the country and maybe for the planet? Yeah, so a plant-based diet, um, if you're a vegan, can reduce up to 73% of your individual carbon footprint. In terms of it, you know, large scale, if everyone went vegan, like let's say in the United States, um, that can actually lower um, at least 0.5 degrees Celsius in which we're increasing. But Again, the idea of veganism as an individual is saying that, you know, um, we're taking a stance against non-human animal oppression and the killings of non-human animals. The industries, right, if you look in agriculture and meats and dairy and fruits and vegetables, the reason why America is still continuing the production of these um, meats and dairy is because it's a profitable business. They're generating almost one to two billion or two billion plus of revenue of and of annual GDP to the U.S. economy, they're not going to stop that. That's actually a threat to the global economy. So what needs to happen is that we need to, again, like what we see in the green car sector and the clean energy sector, is to get these industries to admit to their environmental viola- violations. We need to be able to also divest away from these large-scale industrialized systems that are, quote-unquote, sustainable when we know that when climate disasters strike, there's an increase of of produce when we go to the supermarkets. Um, we also need to localize our food systems. Not many people know how to farm or forage for their own food. And that is being lost because we've relied so much on an industrial market, especially in, in urban areas. I don't know anyone in LA as much that gardens. I know everyone gets their food at an industrial grocery store, even myself. So the argument about veganism, I'd say that it's not about being perfect. It's not about being more righteous, but it's more about being more compassionate and understanding that um, from a worldview, like in our global food policy, that we cannot continue to produce this amount of, of, you know, animals into this that is wasting our water tables. It's wasting, um, you know, air resources that we have and the amount of natural biodiversity that is being lost at a very high scale rate is actually costing us millions of dollars. So it's actually more convenient for the U.S. government to save biodiversity than it is for them to continue producing um, these, you know, these products that we're consuming at our grocery stores. You're listening to a Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got Isaiah Hernandez, environmental educator and activist. We'll be right back in just one minute to talk to Isaiah more about uh, being a vegan and what its effect is on our environment. Yeah. 
You're listening to A Climate Change. I've got Isaiah Hernandez, the queer brown vegan on the show. He is an environmental educator and activist. And uh, before the break, Isaiah, we were talking about the potential reduction in carbon footprint. You had said it was approximately 73%, which is a pretty whopping percentage, could be reduced if a person became a vegan. That's a pretty radical change. Now, the question is, whether or not it's uh, really feasible or what's the rate of people becoming vegans in society and is the change happening fast enough to uh, make a change in our in our carbon footprint so that climate change will be um, reduced. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to say that, you know, 6% of American consumers identify having a vegan diet. So some of the key statistics that we need to understand is that within that demographic, Black Americans are the are the highest rates of individuals that are actually adopting a vegan diet or a plant-based diet. So in terms of it being sustainable in in the long term, is that if everyone can go to it, no, not everyone will go vegan. I have I've always understood that. Um, not everyone can go vegan because the barriers of veganism is access to food, uh, affordability, um, you know, safety, right? And a lot of people do not have the resources um, to be able to adopt a plant-based diet. The second thing is that, is it sustainable um, for vegans to eat more locally? I think it is, but I think the biggest challenge here as a vegan myself is that um, I cannot rely eating from food markets every day. And I forage for my own food, sometimes my own food. I actually learn how to forage for mushrooms, for berries, for plants. But is that actually sustainable long term? No, it's not sustainable for the whole population. And I've really relied on industrial grocery markets to provide that. The issue is that within those that who pick our fruits and vegetables are migrant farm workers. There are people who look like me, people who speak Spanish and people who are underpaid. And so right now, like, you know, people are complaining about lettuce being inc the increased price um, produce that's happening right now. But no one knows that the amount of uh, migrant farm workers get paid less than around three to four dollars a day um, or an hour to actually harvest that. So there's already this exploitation that's happening in a mass limit. And I think when people say veganism is the only solution, I do disagree with that. I do think that veganism is a part of the solution. Eating more locally is part of that solution and eating, eating more sustainably is part of that solution. So I, I recommend for individuals, instead of going vegan, that they just commit to reducing their intake of meat. I know not many people eat meat seven times a day. I think maybe four or five, but I always ask people to at least eat one plant-based diet, I mean, plant-based meal a day or out of the week to actually commit and understanding how you can lower your own carbon footprint. Well, that's certainly a good first step for everybody. And uh, I think the pandemic kind of uh, helped me in that regard is that I started eating at home a little bit more and uh, it's kind of easier to eat a plant-based diet at home for me. And uh, tend to go out. I usually throw in some animal protein into my order, which is kind of almost uh, just a reflexive American type thing to do. But uh, one of the things that you mentioned, I had to push back on a little bit because I I've uh, had a number of clients who are farm workers, and we've represented them in cases they've had across the state of California, thousands of them, 
And uh, generally speaking, they are paid the minimum wage. Now, working conditions are mm. very difficult and out in the 100 degree sun many days or, you know, in very difficult circumstances. So I, I don't think that they are treated as fairly as they should be. And for many years, they were subject to not getting overtime when they worked over eight hours. They had to work over 10 hours to get overtime, which is crazy that the hardest working folks in the toughest conditions get overtime later than everybody else. But uh, putting that aside, uh, moving on to the point of also the farm workers that we have here, if, uh, if we don't have these farm workers, we're not going to get our fruits and vegetables and witness. Uh, Britain had gotten out of the EU, and so it lost a lot of Eastern Europeans who used to be picking their their vegetables and fruits, and now they're gone, and and that fruit is rotting in the field. So that's something that we need here in California, and and fortunately, um, you know, we have a lot of people who are doing those jobs, but we need to pay them well and treat them well to make their lives sustainable and and healthy and and uh, reasonable on that front. So I'm all for more localized agriculture. It is a challenge and it's something that's going to take uh, some time to really build up the infrastructure for Americans to be maybe growing a little bit at home or community gardens or things of that nature. Uh, don't you think that's going to take some time? Yeah, I mean, I think it is going to be taking time because I think right now regenerative agriculture is being introduced as this very new idea. Well, we all know that regenerative agriculture comes from indigenous communities to create these sustainable farming systems. I think one of the biggest things is that how do we get people that do not have access to land um, this resources, right? Because land ownership in the United States is actually very skewed, right? Um, in 1910, Black farmers owned, I think, around 16 million acres of land. And um, in 2017, the census was released that um, the figure is now 4.7 million acres are owned um, by Black farmers. And so when you have this lack of diversity of land ownership in the United States, it actually does shape who's going to get access to food and who would actually uh, be benefiting from those resources. And so I think that with the USDA actually creating these programs to get young farmers into the agricultural systems because they realize that no one wants to be a farmer now because it's not profitable. It's very, like you said, it's very time laborious. How do we get people to get back? And I think as individuals, the most easiest ways in which I've been teaching people in my communities is like, if you live in an apartment, start growing your food. Growing food is a very radical act because it teaches you the, the importance of patience, the importance of paying people for what they're worth. And it makes you have deeper relationships with individuals when you sell it at the farmer's market. Because I have really great relationships with all the farmers I've met at the farmer's markets who tell me exactly how long it took. They can tell me what they what resources they use to produce this food. And they can tell me how much they're making in profit because that's what is supposed to be done. I think when you have a lot of these corporations and billionaires owning large amounts of land, which is I think Bill Gates is one of the largest landowners either in the United States or in the world. Um, he owns a lot of land in the U.S., I believe. 
that is an issue in itself because that land is not being equitably redistributed, nor is it actually being used to produce any types of resources for the general society, right? And that's where we have this issue of like, who is going to feed the world when the corporations and the governments that have been telling us that they're going to continue feeding the world, um, which they have in a certain sense, I'm not saying they have it, I'm saying that to a certain extent, it hasn't been affordable nor accessible for many low-income communities, which is why you have the terminologies, food insecurity, and- Well, I, um, I would say this is that those big corporate-owned farms just tend to have these monocultures, which are not yes. super healthy for our environment. They tend to be producing foods primarily for animal feed, which is not you know, the best probably way we should be producing food. And and it's probably not even good for the animals because it's not the natural mm -hmm. way they yep. would eat. Uh, they didn't naturally eat corn and, and soybean meal, uh, but it's what they get fed because it fattens them up faster to sell them and slaughter them. So, I mean, that's that's the reality. I wanted to pivot a bit and ask you a little bit about the Ecotalk Collective, which is you're the co-director of, and when did you start it and what type of work are you doing there? Yeah, so Ecotalk Collective was created back in 2020 and our original founder was Alex. They are Gen Z climate activists and they wanted to actually use TikTok when it was very popular. Um, and it still is a very popular app today, which is why a lot of um, politicians are trying to get it banned um, for certain reasons. And I think um, it was used to inspire climate activism and climate education. And so this collective is composed of different environmentalists that range from the United States that use their platforms and their specific skills in environmentalism to teach people how to be more sustainable or learn about climate science and to learn about local actions or systemic actions. And the point is to actually get young people funded for climate work because what we're doing is that we, a lot of us have degrees in environmental science. A lot of them actually have their master's or PhDs um, in the specific field. I want to be clear that, you know, we're not just these eco influencers trying to get people to buy electric cars. We're actually people that are trying to have these discussions in long form to bring environmentalism to the mainstream media content. Because when we think about climate, when we think about the environment, a lot of popular culture and dominant culture isn't in our generations within Generation Z and millennials are not really exposed as much to what to do with climate change. There's an agreement saying, yes, I've heard the term climate change or, yeah, I know what climate change is about. It's about the planet getting hotter. Like, you know, that's bad for us. But that's pretty much it. Not a lot of people know, like, well, what are the next steps I should be taking? And so Ecotalk Collective is a, a nonprofit that actually focuses where we work with organizations, academic institutions to communicate climate science and to get young people funded for this work because there really is not many financial opportunities for young people uh, to be displaying their type of work in these high-level conferences or C-suite boards. And so we connect them with these in, um, large leaders in this mentorship program um, to create these pipelines of resources. Well, that's great. Uh, you know, I think that getting the message out there in, in the format that that uh, younger people are actually going to look at it, see it, read it, and get educated, uh, you've got to give it to them in, in many different forms. And uh, certainly TikTok is one of them, though I'm not a huge TikTok fan, given their, 
uh, potential for being uh, infiltrated or their data going uploaded into the Chinese government and them treating American young people differently than the way they treat Chinese young people gives me reason to pause. But uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and we'll be right back with Isaiah Hernandez. listening to a climate change. This is Matt Batter, your host. I've got Isaiah Hernandez, environmental educator and activist on the show. Isaiah, uh, what does a sustainable climate mean to you? What does that look like? Yeah, sustainable climate means to me where individuals, regardless of your race, your gender or your class, that we have access to clean air, water and soil and food and that people actually have the well-being lifestyle that is ecologically sound to them, meaning that they have access to public transportation, they have access to um, health care, they have access to um, be able to vote and to be able to um, collaborate with one of each other and to have their own entrepreneurship, right? I think the biggest issue about imagining about the future of this world is trying to understand that we have a huge wealth disparity gap, right? We know that there's a large accumulation of wealth that is being owned by the 1%. And yes, while people can argue and saying like, well, they worked hard for that money, no one is saying that they didn't work hard, but it, it was built on exploitation of other individuals. And I think that, you know, a sustainable climate isn't about you know, going vegan, going full electric, going um, all of these like green dominant lifestyles that we talk about, it's about, really asking yourself like what are the cultural and traditional values that you've grown up with and what you want to teach for your future because we talk a lot about financial security financial security isn't going to exist in the upcoming decades if your own children um don't even have access to clean air and they can't breathe and they have to spend their whole life trying to spend their money on medical bills right these are things that we need to start to realistically tell ourselves that this is already happening today in the world. And the United States of America, for whatever it was brought upon or whatever it was, quote unquote, um, drawn on of this idea of like hard work will mean that you'll have a good life. We need to say that having a good life should be applied to everyone, right? This isn't like we can make this apolitical as much as we want, but it's not controversial to say that poor people should have access to clean air, water, and food. Oh, absolutely. Everybody's got to have access to those things. Uh, You know, uh, my air should be as clean as your air, which, you know, generally speaking, we're all going to suffer if we have bad air. And in the city of Los Angeles, uh, when we have too much smog, everybody gets hurt by that for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some areas may get hurt a bit worse, but we're all suffering. So we're all in this together. And if if uh, the world goes down in a bad way, everybody's going to suffer uh, badly. So so the question is kind of changing the model of sustainability mm-hmm. to me means that we need to shift the way that we look at what prosperity is for a long period of time. We've judged it through the metric of gross national product on a national level and ever-increasing 
amounts of product being created. Well, to me, that's gotten us in the mess that we're in with the climate uh, because we're not measuring other things which might be even more important, like measuring what's the quality of our air, what's the quality of our water, what's the quality of our food and our education and our health care. And if we're doing well on all of those fronts, then maybe we don't need to produce as many goods. I mean, looking at the goods metric is has led us astray. And mm. to me, it, we need to change the metrics of what a healthy society looks like. And that's a, that's a real fundamental shift because right now we're, we're chasing the wrong metric, gross national product. It's the wrong metric. Yeah, I mean, I think for what for what was lost about the idea of creating products that were good for business owners, good for prosperity of life has been exaggerated today, right? And that's where we talk about overconsumption is that unfortunately, right, there's people who would say, you know, capitalism is good in society if it's done right. And as a young person, I say that I disagree with that to a certain extent because if capitalism was done right in the early days from what it was conceptually to be talked about, then why have we let it to get to this far extreme where now we have- I just stop you there for a second and just say, well, you know, back in 1750 or wherever Adam Smith created the Wealth of Nations or, you know, the founding mm -hmm. uh, documents regarding capitalism, I mean, essentially- resources looked like they were pretty much unlimited, that we couldn't damage the environment as humans, and that it looked like, hey, we could consume all we'd want, and there would always be plenty of nature, and, and our natural world would not cave in because we consumed too many strawberries, or made mm -hmm. too many boats, or whatever, built too many houses. That, that didn't look like it was a problem. At some point in time, and it's only relatively recently that we started to recognize, hey, we have a we have an impact on our environment. And that's when capitalist the capitalist model kind of started to um, not work when we don't value our resources. We don't value good health and good water the same way as we're valuing yeah. producing goods. And that's like former President Trump used to say, well, we've got all this oil in the in the ground. Why don't we use it? Because it's money there. And it comes from this perspective of, well, we've got to, you know, we've got to make money. That's just first and foremost versus, well, does that make us any healthier? Does, is, you know, is that a measure of our wealth? Is that a measure of our well-being? And, and unfortunately, I think the old school capitalist doesn't take that into account. Yeah. And I think this is why, like you were saying too, like in modern society, what we are, where we're at now is that a lot of people will devalue these living natural resources and will not see them for their true wealth. They see them for their economic outputs that they have for availability. And, you know, in environmental economics, we learned that, you know, when I took it years ago in college, it's like, we are taught as environmental economics to value the output of ecological values of what they serve to human society, but not what they serve to the collective well-being. Because in right, the original 
ideations in the histories and mythologies of Earth is that this Earth was meant for coexistence, not just for and not just for us as humans, but for animals and for these living systems like water to me is a living system. It's not non-living. And that is where we've strayed away too far now and that people are now fighting for resources because the next wars that we are expected to see is the war for minerals, the war for water, the war for um, you know, clean air. Like these are all things that are going to be happening in upcoming decades. And I think that if we're not able to come together to this, to a more generalized conceptual statement to say, yes, I don't think it's political to say we deserve prosperity in some way that is ecologically sound, then that may be lost. And I do say that the political spectrum in which we exist today now with, you know, far right extremism or you, you quote unquote far, far left liberals, like it, it does us no good in some way to destroy ourselves within these movements when those people from both sides, left and right, are the ones making those political decisions about our future. Well, I, I'd say going back to your environmental economics class, that's a relatively new thing for, for the planet uh, in terms of I was an economics major back in the 80s, and uh, we, we had no such study of that. We did not, there was not any discussion of really uh, pricing you know, empty land, uh, you know, and, and air mm -hmm. and things of that nature. It was, it was not focused on that. So we're really having a sea change here. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't push hard and push fast to make that sea change because we have limited time in which to make these changes. But we have to be recognizing when we're making these arguments that this sounds scary to somebody who's conservative with a small c who's maybe older and set yes. in their ways and we need to communicate it that hey we're trying to protect the planet we're trying to protect the air and the water and our way of life and uh you know hopefully that message gets through how do you uh plan to frame those messages going forward i'll give you a 30 seconds before we sign off here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about working with young people, right? And within my own sector, as someone that identifies as more liberal, is that I need to meet those that are centrist out there that are communicating to conservative groups, because I know that I'm communicating to my group, getting them to understand this, but we also need from these other political groups to come together and have a discussion. But, you know, again, it's really polarizing to sometimes bring these people into the same room. And that's where I think as a young person, we need to work together to have those conversations. And that's going to take time. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, Isaiah. Uh, you've been listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. Please, everybody, tune in next week. And uh, until then, have a great week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>